coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. I think there's approaches that apply to situations. So sometimes we have to sell it and sometimes we have to tell it. You know, if we have, it's like kids, right? So, so we want to we want to engage our kids to get their homework done. Friday Friday night, six o'clock, we want to make sure the homework's done for the weekend so it's not torture. Just tell them to do it. We want to, yeah. sometimes we engage, so, you know, sometimes we, we, we tell it, we sell it, we collaborate around it. Those are usually the three models we have to go through and it's often situational. And it's sometimes required, Sometimes it's not just telling it, though. It's how we tell it. Again, studies around psychological safety in the workplace right now are really showing that, yeah, I may need to tell you to do something. It's not just telling you. It's how I tell you. It's our our emotional capital we've shared in the past. It's Mm -hmm. how psychologically safe in the environment that I allow you to give me feedback on what I've just told you because I may be telling you with old information. You have new information, but if I'm dictatorial in it, you're going to do it the way I tell you, even though you yeah. have new information that maybe would had it gone more successfully. So I think so much now is as a leader, slowing down. One of the things I teach my leaders is listen to absorb, not respond. When you mm-hmm. get feedback from a staff member, take in what they're saying. Maybe there's clutter around it. Maybe there's hot energy around it. Maybe there's yelling around it. Take it in, take a breath, give a response back as compared to listening to, listening to respond where I'm just going to rapid fire everything back at you to shut you down. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Todd Palmer, who is the CEO of Extraordinary Advisors. So Todd has a long entrepreneurial history of building his own companies and taking six companies to the Inc. 5000 list. So Todd has, again, a great deal of experience of leadership and unclogging bottlenecks. And he's spun all of that and, and taken all of those learnings and created a consulting company that he basically goes and teaches other entrepreneurs the same types of things that he's learned over the years. So we talk a lot about you know some of the challenges that he's commonly seeing in entrepreneurs that have sort of hit a ceiling uh, and how they are helping these entrepreneurs to push through that ceiling and you know basically explode their companies. So if you feel like you're stuck right now, if you feel like you're not making any progress in your company and you know, you're maybe getting frustrated, some of the advice that Todd talks about today is absolutely up your alley. So I hope that you benefit and enjoy the conversation today with Todd Palmer on Pass the Secret Sauce. I would say over the course of my youth, and let's just kind of go from age five to to age 18, I think that works well. Dinner table was an ever-evolving experience. I probably had three primary dinner tables. Mm-hmm. I had the dinner table up to the age of five, and I had the dinner table from the age five to the age 14, and the age 14 to the age 18 in, in the university times. The constant among all three of those dinner tables was my mom. Mm-hmm. 
she was a, she worked in the automotive industry as a clerical support person. Very well read, very very challenging in how she she cha- uh, she challenged me to to look through the world with curiosity, to question authority, which is great for an entrepreneur until it's yeah. not. <laughs> um, and it, it was, it, it, it was very, dinner was a very consistent thing in our household. And, and for me, it was very foundationally grounding mm-hmm. in regards to, you know, you, you, you share your thoughts, you share your day, you kind of unpack things. You, you also have an obligation and a responsibility to listen. It's not just a place where you're just heard, which is part of the role, but it also a chance to listen to others and ask questions around their day. So for me, as, I, as I've moved forward through my life, you know, being at that dinner table was, was, I think, evolutionary to show that over the course of our lifetimes, you know, kind of wherever we show up, there we are. And it's our, we have not only an obligation and a responsibility to show up and be prepared to mm-hmm. converse and share, but also to, to be a good audience for those who need to be heard. That's that's an interesting that's an interesting observation that that you pulled from from your dinner table and absolutely I completely agree. I mean, communication, no matter where it happens, is is incredibly important. So I guess being able to to derive that from your from your dinner table that, that that's great. So now, were you were you exposed to entrepreneurialism growing up as a child, or what, what was your exposure early on to that lifestyle? And you know, you you. You sort of mentioned, you know, questioning authority and all of that, and absolutely, completely agree. That's one of the, you know, core things that you have to have. But you, what, what was your exposure early on to that? Well, you know, so when I think back on it, certainly, you know, my life changed at five years old. So when I was five years old, my father passed away. So mm-hmm. within ninety days, my father passes away. So it was that authority, that parental figure. Mm-hmm. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She had to return to the workforce. Closest job she could find from us was a one-hour drive away. Wow. So she was gone before I woke up and she was, you know, I was kind of winding down my day and she was just getting home. Mm-hmm. My older brother got an athletic scholarship, went from Michigan to Kentucky. Wow. And my older sister was in the process of getting married before my dad passed away. And so she continued that process and she moved to Arizona to be with her new husband. So within about a 90 to 120 day window, all of my, my core caregivers were gone. And as a mm-hmm. child, I processed that, that I couldn't rely upon anybody which as an entrepreneur is a great skill because then we can be HR, we can be ops, we can be sales, we can be very self-contained. So that then from that perspective, I got very heavily into just a lot of unique ways to make money and to problem solve because I grew up on a farm mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of opportunity to, to make money. So I would go to, we had one store in town. Again, it feels like it's a hundred years ago. It really wasn't. I'd go to that one store with my mom and, and take my allowance, which was five bucks. And mm-hmm. I'd spend it on candy. And then I'd take that candy back to school and I would upsell it. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I uh, got called in the principal's office <laughs> for my entrepreneurial bent because I was taking advantage and I was unfair to my fellow students. And going back with my mom's attitude of question authority, I'm like, well, they can all stop at the same store. If they don't get an allowance, why is that my fault? All these different things. Mm -hmm. And so I got this really interesting lesson very early on in life that not everybody's going to be excited about you being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You know, as I fast forward into getting into, you know, young adulthood and, and doing different things, I was always looking for ways to control my destiny, looking for ways to be able to, make an impact on the world the way I wanted to. And I wasn't typically a very good employee in high school and college and even into my early 20s. 
because I just thought there was a better way to do things. And I thought through entrepreneurship, that was a way to deliver a better experience for others, as well as hopefully become, you know, compensated at at an above average level. I I love that answer. And, and you and I have uh, a similar story. My father passed away when I was 16. So I, I can certainly identify, you know, with those challenges and what that, you know, what that does, you know, as far as, as, you know, your support systems, sure. and, yeah. you know, huge, huge change. But, you know, for, for me, I can look back on that time and, you know, realize before that I was very, very reserved and wouldn't really talk to people all that terribly much. And after that, I was like, you know what, life is too short, screw it. Let me go out and, you know, do whatever it is, challenge authority and, and, you know, make my mark and, and, you know, do things the way that I think they should be done. So, you know, kudos to you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's great insight into, you know, some of those early lifelong lessons that, you know, you're still uh, pulling from today. Well, it's, it's interesting that, you know, those worked until they did it. So I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a very rugged individualist and I got into entrepreneurship back in the days when I, I tell people it wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. It wasn't, there wasn't no shark tank. There was no, the profit there, there, there wasn't that, that mythology, I think to some, some degree about being an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur because I was a terrible employee. Yep. I was an entrepreneur because I was a pain in the butt and I, and I wasn't a really, uh, I, I didn't play well with others in the corporate sandbox mm-hmm. and in the beginning, as you know, you're, you're doing all the roles and all the responsibilities. I owned a recruiting company, so I was finding opportunities for, for people to get jobs, and I was finding the people to fill those client opportunities. I was negotiating the contracts. I was running payroll. I was doing everything. But once I wanted to scale that business up, you know, it, being a rugged individualist doesn't make you a great leader. Mm-hmm. It makes you a really good solopreneur. Yeah. But I didn't know that at the time. So I realized that my greatest strength or what I thought was my greatest strength was, was being you know, self-sufficient was a real detriment when I wanted to grow and scale the business because I made a bunch of bad decisions. I alienated a bunch of employees. I, I would exercise and give out you know, the, the delegate and elevate mindset with really what I was doing is delegating and advocating and never followed up. I didn't. So yeah, so long story short, going from you know, being a rugged individual to trying to grow and scale a business actually ended up getting me six hundred thousand dollars in debt so mm-hmm. it, it worked well for me until it didn't yeah yeah and and talk a little bit about some of those things that you started doing to change all of it actually before before we get to that why don't you give a, a brief explanation as to you know, where you're at today i know you're on the inc 5000 list um talk a little bit about some of your successes and then we'll get into some of those shifts that you that you uh started employing to to be able to take that six hundred thousand dollar debt and, and turn that all around. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you know, had I had I not, it's it's the weirdest juxtaposition as we're thinking about this here. I would never have made the Inc. Five Thousand as one of the fastest growing companies in America six times if I hadn't gotten into debt. Mm-hmm. It's like I had to get to the bottom of the valley to get to the top of the mountain. So, so the company that that I ran was a company named Diversified Industrial Staffing, based out of Detroit, and we placed skilled trades talent around the United States in a, in a very unique spot that we only discovered by getting into debt. So now I retired from that business almost four years ago now, Mm -hmm. and I coach companies and I help leaders create a a better life by design with inside out leadership. I've got my second book coming out in February of 2021 called From Suck to Success, A Guide to Extraordinary Entrepreneurship. Uh And the the model of coaching that I I really implore upon my clients is that in order to change your exterior world, in order to change your business, in order to change the, the trajectory of your business or break through the bottlenecks that your business may be experiencing, it's all inside out leadership. And that's what I had to go 
and, and do for myself. When I was $600,000 in debt, I had to go out and hire a coach to help me because I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know a lot. As I fast forward now to, to, to where I'm at today, you know, I've had some clients that have grown their revenue 70% in one year, but in the magic of that is they were able to grow their profits 500% mm-hmm. because the leader decided instead of looking at his staff and what they weren't doing well, in this case, he said, I need to step up and I need to grow. And he heard my story on a podcast of all things and decided to engage me because he realized that a lot of the practitioners out there in the coaching space teach a process. And, mm-hmm. I, and I have processes I use, but all my work that I do with my clients is, is inside out leadership that again, using myself as the example, what used to get me, help me be successful was no longer working. Okay. Okay. And, and so what are some examples of, of things that, you know, I guess are, are common to a lot of people that, you know, some of the mistakes that they're doing or, or, you know, the ways that they're looking at things or, or, you know, delegating things, what, what are some of those things that, that are commonly issues that you see? So with entrepreneurs specifically, the first thing I always start with is dealing with the individual. So a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of CEOs suffer from what I call imposter syndrome. It's where I show up to a, a networking event or I'm sitting with a bunch of peers or other CEOs. And the, the story I tell myself is I don't belong here. What, am I, what, what, what kind of club do I want to be part of that would let me in here? Don't they know that I don't know what the heck I'm doing? And I, I, I wait till they find out who I really am so they can quickly reject me. And I want to do everything I can to prevent that from happening. Okay. So imposter syndrome, which I think runs rampant through the entrepreneurial community. A lot of early stage entrepreneurs, even some late stage entrepreneurs focus on revenue over profits, revenue over margin. I know I did. My goal, my successful goal in, in the staffing business to get to, was to get to 20 million. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that less than 5% of all companies incorporated in the United States actually ever make 1 million. Mm-hmm. So I'm running at a four or $5 million rate in, you know, getting further into debt because I kept chasing the next high of how can I get mm-hmm. the next sale? So revenue over margin is a big thing. And I think, you know, lastly, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs, and I know I suffered from this, is the, the suffer from expectations. You know, I'm only successful if I meet my expectation of reaching $20 million in revenue. One of the reality was that didn't serve me well. And once I got to the, the top of our mountain, it, it didn't satisfy me. Mm-hmm. What did satisfy was my intentionality around things. Intention, not expectation, which scientifically I've now learned when I'm intentional, I've got a much greater access to being creative where I'm expectational. I'm very much fight or flight, win or lose mm-hmm. scorekeeping. And so now I use a different coach. So for six years, I used one coach. Now I use a different coach for the last seven years. And he's a neuroscientist and he helps me understand how my brain works so that I can be a better coach. So I can be a better leader and a better CEO. But ultimately the secret is I can be better for me as an individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is a, I guess a key to being a good a good leader. Oh wow, you know it's and you see this a lot, especially during the times of COVID, is they, they want leaders to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the work of Brene Brown. She's the you know in my mind the guru of of vulnerability. And for an entrepreneur, for a leader to be vulnerable, part of it is putting aside your pride and ego, and to over communicate even when it's uncomfortable. To over communicate when you don't have all the answers. I would only communicate with my staff back in the day when we were in, in bad shape, when I had all the answers, because my imposter syndrome was telling me good leaders have all the answers to all the problems all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm $600,000 in debt. I don't have any answers to anything, and I don't want to engage anybody, so I kept everybody at arm's length. 
Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. Now I think one of the greatest traits that, that I, I want to work with my leaders on is, is showing up and, and saying, hey, listen, during these tough times, I want you guys to know that we're doing a lot of the right things. You know, heart-centered leaders certainly want to first and foremost validate and tell their staff that they're, they're important to them, demonstrate to them that they care about them, and then talk about what they're doing. You know, we, you know, back, back in March of 2020, I had a lot of clients that re, were trying to find PPP money, EIDL money, money to stay afloat, and they weren't sure how that was going to happen. They weren't sure if they were going to get the money. So we designed language tracks for them to share where they were, what they knew, what they didn't know, and encourage conversations and engagement. That works great with millennial audiences, for example. What we realize, though, is that carries one message in a written format, text message or email. What I really encourage my leaders to do is to show up on video. Just mm-hmm. you know, record a quick video, share with them, let them see you. 85% of communication is done non-verbally. Let mm-hmm. them feel your energy. Let them see your expressiveness. And I had one leader pivot from getting no engagement with her team to having 18 of 20 leaders get back to her within five minutes of her first video, which basically said, here's, here's our brutal reality. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm doing. I care about you all as human beings. I don't have all the answers. Let's engage. Let's have a conversation. Ch- it changed everything. And she's been doing the, the weekly videos now since March. Mm-hmm. And, and these videos, are they uh, are they – how can I say this? Are they are they sort of one way conversations where she's sort of processing and digesting everything, and then and then delivering that message to her team, and then you know she she gets the responses back, and then sort of regurgitates everything, and then sends the next message out. Or how how do those how are those messages being relayed? The, it's evolved. So in the beginning, so in the beginning it was just a, a one way out message. Hey, I see you know here I am. See me, hear me. Here's where we are. Kind of a status update. Then that involved in the videos popping back in at her. So now what she does is on Monday, she'll send a team video. Here's where we are. And it's in a private channel. And then on Wednesday, because they still are, are all working from home, everybody hops on a Zoom call and they have interactions. And then what she's been doing once a month kind of to complete the video cycle is they'll have happy hour. Okay. Uh, you know, one Friday a month where they all sit around with their favorite beverage and kind of talk about the day, talk about what their kids are going through on a Zoom school, all, all these different things. 
she even brought me in one time. I was a guest speaker to kind of talk with them about getting unstuck and how, mm-hmm. how to help uh, be seen and heard at home because she was re- hearing from her leaders that, you know, they, they, they feel guilt not being engaged with their kids on, you know, while the kids are in zoom school, but they're trying to get their work done and the kids need something and the technology breaks and they're, they're, they're not only bad employees, they're bad parents. So we help them with that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's that kind of leadership in, in seeing the world through the lens of your staff sometimes that also adds to your vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. So it's, so it's really, I guess, I guess to a, to a degree, it's really enhancing your ability for empathy, really. Oh right? my gosh. You know, to- great word. Absolutely. It's, it's that empathetic listening. It's active listening, pe- mirroring back to your staff with empathy. Mm-hmm. You did it with me just a, a little while ago where we were talking about parents. I lost my dad. You lost your dad. You shared mm-hmm. I shared a story. You empathized and shared a story. We, we created a different connection. We're now firing on a different level. It's, sim- it's just that simple, but it's also that just complicated. So had you not shared your story about your dad, yeah, I, I, I you still would have a positive impression of it, but now I have a deeper connection with you. So yeah. empathy, in my experience, with mirroring and, and, and the, the tell me more questions and the going below the layers of the surface uh, are, are really, I think, where leaders can be seen going forward as caring human beings, you know, the, 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 the conscious capitalism leader versus the, 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 just the numbers and the nuts and bolts leader of, you know, decades prior. Yeah. Yeah. No, couldn't agree more. Now, do you, do you find that a lot of, I guess, entrepreneurs at any stage are a little bit more dictatorial to their staff? Like, you know, I need this, I need this done, you know, now, or, you know, what, what is your exposure or an experience with that type of an approach? Uh, well, so I was that leader for a while and mm-hmm. it did not work very well. So the approach did not work. <laughs> I think there's approaches that apply to situations. So sometimes mm-hmm. we have to sell it and sometimes we have to tell it, mm-hmm. you know, if we have, it's like kids, right? So, so we want to we want to engage our kids to get their homework done. Friday Friday night six o'clock we want to make sure the homework's done for the weekend so it's not tortured. Just tell them to do it. We want to yeah. sometimes we engage. So, you know, sometimes we, we we tell it, we sell it, we collaborate around it. Those are usually the three models we have to go through, and it's often situational, and it's sometimes require. Sometimes it's not just telling it though; it's how we tell it. But again, studies around psychological safety in the workplace right now are really showing that yeah, I may need to tell you to do something. It's not just telling you, it's how I tell you. It's our, our emotional capital we've shared in the past. It's mm-hmm. how psychologically safe in the environment that I allow you to give me feedback on what I've just told you because I may be telling you with old information. You have new information, but if I'm dictatorial in it, you're going to do it the way I tell you, even though you yeah. have new information that maybe would have gone more successfully. So I think so much now is, as a leader, slowing down. One of the things I teach my leaders is listen to absorb, not respond when you mm-hmm. get feedback from a staff member. Take in what they're saying. Maybe there's clutter around it. Maybe there's hot energy around it. Maybe there's yelling around it. Take it in. Take a breath. Give a response back as compared to listening to, listening to respond where I'm just going to rapid fire everything back at you to shut you down. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, what I've found in situations where I, I've been like that too, where I've been, you know, very dictatorial and, and what I've often found is it, it will take people's, I guess, creative ability, or it, they're going to start relying on you for everything. You know, they're not going to, you know, 
take it upon themselves. Oh, you know, I can, I can figure this problem out on my own. You know, I can, I can do this on my own. It's always going to be, oh, what do you think? What should we do about this? What should we do about that? If they, you know, if you're, if you're taking all of that away from them all of the time, you know, you don't get the best of your employees. They're just, you know, they're essentially as another set of hands, not a, not another mind. You know. Well, I would say, yes, you're right. And more as a lot of people don't realize this. And again, I didn't realize this either. When our staff is always coming to us to sign off on things, mm-hmm. they're no longer owning the problem either. Right. Right. I had an, an accounting person who worked for me for quite a while. And eventually I had to say to her, said, this is your department. You handle it. Well, I just want your, your sign off on it. I mean, we're talking, you know, under a $500 decision. Like I don't yeah. need to be involved in that. I'm running a $10 million company. I don't need a $500 decision signed off on. And we had to create boundaries around how we communicated because I'm telling my coach about my behavior with this person. And he's saying, uh, yeah, she's not owning anything. So if it goes wrong, she's going to blame you. And yeah. if it goes right, she's going to take all the credit. So either way, she's putting you into that mix. So if you want her to own the problem, the model becomes if, you, if it's really a big problem, bring me three solutions or bring me what you think you should do. I create, I had to create boundaries around it so that if it was under a $2,000 decision, I didn't want to be involved. Yeah. Two, and bring me th- and anything over 10, you know, we want to handle it differently. So she had boundaries and parameters because I think ultimately people sometimes will suffer from a lack of confidence. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. often comes from, you know, childhood programming, previous employers, maybe not even us, but they bring that to our world. So we, as the leaders, Part of our job is to teach them and reprogram them to be more successful in the in the companies we're running. Yeah, couldn't agree more. You know, and a lot of a lot of people don't necessarily question the authority, like what we were talking about earlier. So if they don't question that authority, they're going to go with whatever the authority tells them to do. And you know, if you're that person, then you know they're they're just going to keep following down that path. So so you've talked a lot about coaches. Obviously, you're a coach yourself. So so. What what were some of the I, I I assume that this is probably you know a big pivoting point for you when you when you decided to take the leap and actually hire a coach. What do you think your life would look like today had you not, you know, realized that maybe there's a better way to do this? Maybe I can learn from somebody else's mistakes and somebody else's experiences. And you know, I I understand that in order to be able to get good advice, I need to be able to pay for it. So talk a little bit about your you know your coaching stance. Yeah. So my kind of my, my coaching journey, my coaching arc was this. I was $600,000 in debt. I was two months away from running out of all of my money. And my house was going to be taken by the bank. The bank was calling the note. I'm a single parent. It's my son and I, and he's asking me, what are you going to do? I'm asking myself, what am I going to do? <laughs> and I finally, it's kind of like the, you know, the Hail Mary in football. I'm like, okay, I need help. I thought the model I told myself and the story I, I, I dropped into my doom loop was, Great leaders have all the answers to all the problems all the time. So it, it, it was a weakness to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Well, I was pretty weak. I was on my knees, kind of like, you know, we've got clients that have gone through 12-step programs. Like, you know, your, your greatest moment of clarity comes from your greatest moment of weakness sometimes too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I need help. And so I hired this coach because I needed to not see him as an expense, but as an investment. Mm-hmm. An investment is me as a leader. An investment is in, into the business that I was quickly crashing and burning into the ground. And so for me, I realized there was a lot I didn't know. So I came to him very humbly and I put my pride and my ego aside and say, here's all the things I don't know. Teach me, Mm -hmm. tell me, what am I missing? And the first thing he started with was mindset. First thing he started with was the, he called it the doom loop in my head. And he was, he was a college golfer and still very successful golfer today. And he said, you can only play the shot you have. You can't play the shot you just duffed and you can't play the Mm -hmm. shot that's upcoming. And you, 
and my brain was swinging so wildly between all the mistakes that I made and all the problems I don't want to carry forward, but I couldn't live in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so we created a program called the five positives and the five positives every day got, got me eventually unstuck. Cause I was very stuck. Uh, is, you know, a lot of people would argue I was clinically depressed. I was very stuck. So the first thing it was getting unstuck. And then he taught me massive actions to take. Uh, we pivoted through those successfully. So now what we eventually call created was we call the E4 process. It's recognize what wasn't working for me. So doing business as a rugged individual wasn't working for me. Being $600,000 in debt wasn't working for me or my kid. So what did we do? We created an intention. So the, using the debt as the model, 600K in debt, my intention is to get out of debt. The, the saving grace was I didn't create a 100% strategy on how to do that. What I did is I, I kind of like jazz and music. I left space between the notes. All right, we're going to try this. We're going to try that. So I created a strategy around the intention to get out of debt. And we took massive action against strategy to get out of debt. And we just pivoted. And so, you know, I tell this story a lot, unfortunately. On uh, September 9th of 2006, I fired my entire company. I started over. That's how bad it was. I needed cash now. Well, when I brought in new people, righted the ship, got some cash in the door, I pivoted how I hired. I created a strategy called hire for DNA, not for resume. And as I brought the new people in, I taught them, here's our intentional mindset. Here's the strategy around your intention, whether it's a, an intention at your desk for your day or an intention for the year for the business. And we just kept doing that over and over and over again. We kept the things that worked, got rid of the things that didn't work. And within eight years, we got out of debt, thank goodness, and made the Inc. 5,000 six times. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so today with your coaching uh, programs, do you focus in on any one type of industry or one type of business, or is it pretty well, you know, you can help entrepreneurs across any type of? That, and that's a great question because a lot of people think, except with my staffing background, I'm going to want to work with staffing companies or HR focused companies. And the universal problem that I see in every company is it's always people. Mm -hmm. It's the people who make the decisions about the cash, the people who make the poor decisions about the strategy, the people who don't hold people accountable for the KPIs. So from, from my perspective, I take a look at the DNA of the leader I'm going to be working with, and I put them through a diagnostic. And if they're a good fit for the way I coach and the way I do it, their, their industry is secondary. They can teach me. Like I, I work with a client right now. They're in the sciences. They're in the, the hard sciences, rocks and, and metals. Okay. And I, I, I don't know anything about how all that works. And yeah. I told him this and he goes, but he goes, but you understand how people work and you understand all the stuff that as a leader, it's holding me back from doing my job. Yeah. I, I, you don't need to know how to be able to, to make them, you know, to, to do metallurgy. And so for me, it's, you know, are you a lifelong learner? Have you realized like I did that you, you don't have all the answers? Mm -hmm. Are you, do you realize that you're stuck? Are you tired of being stuck? Are you willing to do the work? Are you willing to make the difficult decisions? Are you willing to stay in some of the uncomfortable moments? You know, I had one leader, he, he had to let go of a key six-figured executive because that was the bottleneck in the company. Mm -hmm. I said, my leaders ultimately have two jobs. They remove bottlenecks. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's process, sometimes it's clients. And they have a second job is to make it easy. Make it easy for people to work with you as your, your colleagues and employees and make it easier for companies to work with you as your customers. Mm -hmm. That's really what you do. If you do those two things, remove bottlenecks and make it easy, your job is going to be cake. And, and people love that. Oh my gosh, it's so easy. Oh, there's like 9,000 steps underneath those two bandwidths to, to do it. So for me, uh, it, it ultimately comes down to, do I have a leader that wants a life by design? Do I have a leader that understands his work-life integration, not work-life balance? Do I have a leader who's, who's willing to have the tough conversations? And if they don't know how to have the tough conversations, they're willing for me to teach them how to have those tough conversations. Mm -hmm. 
Because once the leader gets unstuck, once the, in, you know, the inside leadership track gets running, we can make any change in any company and we can grow and scale any business. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I guess kind of a, a core belief that, that these entrepreneurs need to have is that they, that they need people. You know, they don't, it's not the, you know, the single you know, entrepreneur and they have to you know, really buy into that and understand that you know, they can't do all of this on their own and, and uh, you know, they, need other, they need help from others. No. Well, it's, that, that's interesting because I've got, a, I've got a couple of clients that are kind of in that solopreneur early mm-hmm. stage and they really revel in the, the joys of hard work they mm-hmm. revel in being all things to all people. Now, they're all they two clients. They're both single. But their goals, they're like, so we're doing life by design with entrepreneurship with them. Mm-hmm. And their goals are to have families. And they, they hearken back to when they were kids. And like, hey, listen, this is, this is fine for now. Yeah. When, I, when I meet the spouse of my dreams and I start a family, this is not sustainable. So they're yeah. almost future thinking in working with me now to break some of those habits while they've served them well to a certain point. And they realize that they have areas they need to grow into where they don't have the expertise, that they need to go out and retain that expertise. And they realize that they are their own worst enemy. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm huge into, you know, personal growth and, and always learning. And I, I absolutely love all of this. You can never, you can never have too many, uh, you know, opinions on how you're doing things. I don't think, you know, just, just keep learning and keep pushing yourself to, you know, learn more about yourself and learn, learn, you know, these different topics that you're, you're interested in or that can help you. So I love it. I love it. Todd, if people want to learn more about you or your services, what would be the best way to do that? Well, Matt, uh, if anybody wants to learn more about me, certainly go to my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com. Email me at Todd at extraordinaryadvisors.com. And I'm happy to give anybody 30 minutes of my time to talk through what's maybe got them stuck. Maybe, you know, whether it's uh, their itty bitty shitty committee telling them and then imposter sitting like, <laughs> how, much, I love it. how much I suck. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I had a conversation this weekend with somebody about my next book, Success to, Suck to Success, and they really were bothered by the title, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, the, the, and they're a coach and they serve as a very specific bandwidth of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And so if anybody has heard me use the word suck, I might be for you. Um, <laughs> if anybody has, is telling themselves that, you know, that any version of that, that that they're going through, I might be of help to you. And I've helped a lot, you know, go to my website. I've helped a lot of people for free with 30 minutes just to help them kind of rattle out because I think as, a, as an entrepreneurial community, an entrepreneur alone is an entrepreneur at risk. So if you feel compelled, please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to chat with you. I love it. Todd, thanks for being on the show. And uh, this is a lot of fun today. You, you uh, provide a lot of value, a lot of, lot of insights into you know, your own personal experiences and how you're, how you're delivering that to other entrepreneurs too. So I think that uh, you're certainly going to help some of our listeners as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.